in, uh, in 1672, about 50 miles northwest of London, in Bedford, England, John Bunyan was released after 12 years of imprisonment. He was imprisoned for refusing to stop preaching the gospel without a license. He was 44 years old when he was released. Now this is just, this is John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, not Paul Bunyan, the giant lumberjack. But just before his release from prison, he apparently updated his spiritual autobiography, which was entitled Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which is probably the best title for any autobiography ever. He looked back over the hardships of the previous 12 years of his time in prison, uh, and he wrote about how God had enabled him to survive and even to, to spiritually to thrive in that jail there in Bedford in England. And in his autobiography, he quotes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, in which Paul writes this. The Apostle Paul writes, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. Then Bunyan wrote this. He said, By this scripture, I was made to see that if I ever would suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can properly be called a thing of this life, even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyment, and all as dead to me, and myself as dead to them. And second was to live upon God that is invisible. He says, as Paul said in another place, the way not to faint is to look not at the things which are seen, but on the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. To live upon God that is invisible. Bunyan discovered through his, during this 12 years of his imprisonment, he discovered that if, if we are to suffer rightly, we must die not only to sin, but even to those innocent and, and precious things upon this world, uh, family, freedom. We must live upon God that is invisible. Everything else in the world must be counted as dead to us and we to it. This was Bunyan's aspiration from the time of his conversion as a young married man to the day of his death when he was 60 years old. We must live upon God that is invisible. But that doesn't mean that we cannot see him. Today we're going to go back to our study of the gospel according to John. We're going to look at just one verse, really just one statement that, that Jesus makes here that has incredible eternal significance. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's short. I'm going to read it again. Again, Jesus said to them, or spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's just take a moment to pray one more time as we express our dependence upon God. 
Lord, what we don't know, I pray that you would teach us today. I pray that we, as people of the light, would walk in the light, following the true light. Not only when we are around one another, not only when we are at work, but that we would be people of the light, following the true light, even in our own minds, our thought lives, even when we are alone, that we would genuinely be people of the light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to review, um, in, in chapter 7, there's sort of a long, uh, long sections in John's gospel of Jesus speaking and teaching. And so in chapter 7, at the beginning of the chapter, he travels to Jerusalem. He does so kind of privately, quietly, and he observes the people as they enjoy the, the annual Feast of Booths, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And while he is there, he goes to the temple, and eventually he starts teaching there. Now, this, of course, caused some problems for the Jewish religious leadership, and they made some efforts to discredit him there in chapter 7, and, and even to have him arrested. But as John will say over and over again, his time had not yet come, and so the Jews were unsuccessful in shutting him up. And chapter 7 ends really with this kind of great confusion among the people, division in the crowd, and, and division even among the authorities and the, and the temple officers. And then as we saw a couple of weeks ago, there's this scene where the scribes and the, and the Pharisees bring to him this woman who is caught in the act of adultery. And maybe this scene fits here in John, Maybe it happened at a different time, but regardless, Jesus now is back in the temple. And this verse, John 8, 12, seems to pick up really right where chapter 7, verse 52 left off. With Jesus teaching, probably, a very hostile and confused crowd. Now one of the arguments for including the scene of the woman caught in the act of adultery here at the beginning of chapter 8 is the theme of this, this courtroom setting. So if you remember, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, in that, in that first section of John 8, really chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11, the Jews there, the scribes and Pharisees, unironically invite Jesus to sit in judgment. And he does. And so in chapter 7, Jesus, really throughout the rest of chapter 7, Jesus is kind of sitting at the defense table, if we think of it that way. If you think of the theme of a courtroom. He's sitting at a defense table in this courtroom, and he is defending himself. In fact, even at one point he says, why do you seek to kill me? Then he moves to the judge's bench at the end of 7 and beginning of chapter 8. And now he's at the plaintiff's table. And we will see as the, as the chapter unfolds, he actually puts them on the defensive, really because of how they're using God's law as a weapon to try and discredit and even destroy him. And so John chapter 8, verse 12 is, is really his opening arguments in this great kind of courtroom scene. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, I should mention, because it seems... Seems as though every commentary um, I looked at in studying this verse and this passage brought, brought this up. If this scene actually took place at the very end of the Feast of Booths, 
And we kind of talked about a, 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 the previous chapter a couple of weeks ago. But if it took place then at the end of this Feast of Booths, then it is very possible that Jesus makes this statement here in verse 12, I am the light of the world. It's very possible that he makes this just after or, or just as these very large lamps were, were lit there in the temple court. So oftentimes when you turn on the lights, kids will say, let there be light, especially in a church. If the lights go out and you turn them back on, you say, let there be light, right? The lights come on and Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It makes sense. We can see as these lights come on, as the, as the, the, the Jews light these lights as part of their ceremony, these ceremonial lighting of lights, that Jesus might say, I am the light of the world. As if to proclaim to them, your symbolic gestures aren't the point. They are supposed to direct your attention to me. I am the light of the world. But certainly, the point here in John's record of this, of him saying these things, quoting Jesus here, it really isn't for us to see the fulfillment of the Jewish traditions in Christ. Sometimes that's the case, and it's a significant point. But here, the point is for us to focus on his words. The, focus is to, is to, the, the point is for us to focus on the statement that Jesus makes. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the second of Jesus' great I am statements in the book of John. The first we looked at a while back, it was John 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You can kind of hear the similarities in the statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. They're both symbolic. They both refer to, to salvation. But it, it is Jesus' use of this phrase, I am, that brings us back to the desert. Right back to the Exodus. It brings us right back to ancient Israel's escape from their captivity and, and slavery. This is not the first time. In fact, for three chapters now, chapters 6, 7, and 8, we've seen reference to Israel's time in the desert. So in John chapter 6, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, we saw that he is the true manna from heaven that God has provided. In chapter 7, he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And that brings to mind God's provision of water in the desert for the, his people. And now Jesus is saying that he is the light of the world. So let's go to the desert. Um, listen to Exodus chapter 13, just verses 21 and 22. Exodus 13, 21 and 22 says this. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Here in John eight twelve, Jesus Jesus seems to be pointing back to this. But there's even more to it, because Jesus doesn't claim to be a cloud. He claims to be the light of the world. So could it be that the light, uh, without the light of the world, the night, the darkness, would be overwhelming? 
Could it be that without the light of the world, the darkness would be overwhelming? Hold on to that question. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But here in, in Exodus 13, 21, uh, Moses tells us, or we read that the Lord went before them. The Lord went before them. The Lord, Yahweh, I am, went before them. That's what the words say. I am went before them as a guide, to, as a light to guide them in the darkness, just as he had promised that he would. He had said in Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 to 8, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, that is El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. He never told them that name. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And now Jesus makes this bold statement here. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And just as, just as I am, told the people of Israel that he remembered his covenant with them in Exodus 6. Jesus is going to establish a, a new covenant with his people because he's heard their, the groanings of his people in their slavery to sin and he has remembered them and he will redeem them with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment just as he did in Exodus so once again, Jesus is claiming the name I am for himself. And as he will again, he will do this several times in John's gospel. But I ask you to hold on to that question. Here was the question again. Could it be that without the light of the world, the darkness would be overwhelming? Could it be that the darkness would be overwhelming? In order to answer that, and to see Jesus as the light of the world, we need to begin with a different question. But that's the big question that we're going to answer today. But the question that we need to understand as we work through this is, what is darkness? What is darkness? What does Jesus mean when he talks about walking in darkness? Well, this is actually a fairly common idiom, a figure of speech, even in the English language. There are movies and music and books that, that reference the, the, the darkness and, and even the world understands that it's really talking about a, a representation of evil, of bad things. This is one biblical metaphor that our culture actually gets kind of right. Darkness often does represent evil. But in Jesus' statement here, 
we need to understand that the opposite of darkness isn't light. The opposite of darkness is Jesus. Let's name again, I am the light of the world. Or literally, he says, the light of the world, I am. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the opposite of the darkness. Well, let's not look to pop culture, movies or music or books to define darkness. We need to look at God's word. I think it's ironic, but darkness often begins, I think, in Scripture with a lack of knowledge. In fact, Paul will explain this in Romans chapter 1. I want to read verses 18 to 23. Romans chapter 1, he explains that darkness begins with a lack of knowledge. Of course, in verses 16 and 17, Paul proclaims that he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And then he says in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He says their, their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, there in Romans chapter 1, there's a ton that we could unpack. There's a ton there that we could work through, even about this concept of, of darkness. But just consider that, that darkening of man's heart for a moment. God's nature, Paul says. So, for example, his goodness or his majesty. God's nature has been clearly seen ever since creation, Paul says there. We've seen his goodness and his majesty in the things that have been made. Every, every beautiful sunrise, every beautiful sunset is designed to proclaim the majesty of God. Every, every snowstorm is designed to proclaim the majesty of God. You may disagree with me on this one, but every good cup of coffee is designed to proclaim the goodness of God. Amen. You can substitute whatever you want in there. Um, we could say it this way. Your taste buds are designed to proclaim, uh, are designed in such a way that you would respond by proclaiming the goodness of God, right? But when sin entered into the world and darkness or, or, or death through sin, we became futile in our thinking. We became simple and pointless and foolish and our foolish hearts were darkened, Paul says. And if you look at, at the Genesis account, if you look at, at Genesis chapter 3, right away, man believes lies. Right away. Mankind believes lies. As Paul mentions in Romans, 
and you look at it and compare it to the Genesis account, it doesn't take very long for idolatry to set in. And claiming to be wise, humanity very quickly exchanges the, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. But here's the thing. I said that, that darkness begins with a lack of knowledge, but it's actually a self-imposed lack of knowledge. We are responsible. Paul writes there in Romans chapter 1, in that passage he says, They are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Listen to the, the prayer of the psalmist. In Psalm 82, verses 4 and 5 says this, Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Is this your prayer for your unbelieving friends, family? That God would rescue them because they are weak and needy? That he would deliver them from the hand of the wicked because they have no knowledge they have no understanding and they're walking about in the darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken because it's everywhere. This ought to be our prayer that God would rescue them. To say that the world is in darkness is to say, even from Psalm 82 there, it's to say that the, that the world is stumbling about in, in ignorance in superstition, in folly, in foolishness. But it gets even worse because darkness isn't simply intellectual. Darkness isn't simply an issue of knowledge. It's also moral. We could put it this way. Evil lurks in the darkness. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 12 to 15. Uh, Solomon, as he's assembling these proverbs, these sayings for his son on wisdom. He says that wisdom delivers you, Proverbs 12, 15, or 2, 12 to 15. He says that wisdom delivers you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who replace or rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. They walk about in darkness. In Proverbs later in chapter 4, verse 19, it will bring these ideas of a, of a lack of knowledge and, and evil, bring them together, and Solomon warns this. He says, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And Jesus confirmed all of this when he said in John chapter 3, as he was speaking to Nicodemus in John 3, 19 and 20, he says, this is the judgment. The lights come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This is precisely where Romans chapter 1 goes. 
Listen again to Romans 1, 21. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then jump down to verse 28. In Romans 1, 28, he says this. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Evil lurks in darkness, and yet people love darkness rather than light, Jesus said. The darkness of the world controls the intellect, our our thinking, it controls our morality. Uh, We could say our behavior, our thinking, our behavior, and it leads only to bondage, misery, and death. In Isaiah chapter 8, as the prophet speaks against the Assyrians specifically and and the world, uh, the way of the world in general, he he says in verse 11 and then down in verse 22, so, so Isaiah says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, and then down in verse 22, he goes like this. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Thick darkness. Bondage, misery, and death. Later in Isaiah, uh, he will say this in, in chapter 59. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. That's a description of what it's like to be a slave to sin. The darkness of this world is bondage to sin, and it's a misery that leads only to death. This is the common human experience. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. The worst part about the darkness is that it doesn't end with death. That's the worst part about it. It doesn't end with death. We also face judgment. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. I'm not sure I've ever quoted Zephaniah in a sermon before. 
But Zephaniah 1, verses 14 and 15 says this, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. That's the bad news. But God did not create the world just to leave us in the dark. This is the good news. In fact, his first words were recorded in Scripture. God's first words recorded in Scripture were, let there be light. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light, of life. And John has said in John chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. I am the light of the world. This is the good news, because the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it. So what does it mean to to follow the light of the world, as he says here? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, for the ancient Israelites, it was a literally following the light, that, that pillar of fire through the darkness, out of their slavery, through the land of their sojourn, and, and into the promised land. It's no less true for us. We need to carefully understand that Jesus is not merely a light. He says he is the light. He's the only true light the world has ever known. Again, in, in the first chapter of John, John 9, he, he, 1.9, he says this, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's what we're seeing here in these chapters of John. His own people are not receiving him. They're listening to his words. They're listening to his teaching. They're looking at the light, and they're saying no. They're not receiving him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what does it mean to follow the light? It means to believe in his name. In Matthew's gospel, the first sermon that Jesus preaches is talked about in Matthew 4, verse 17. Matthew writes, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then two verses later, he says to his disciples, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. To follow Christ is not a mystical experience. It means to follow him as a as a soldier follows his commander. It means to follow him wherever he will tell us to go, wherever he will lead us. It means trusting in him, trusting in his leading uh, with our entire lives, with all that is in us. J.C. Ryle, I've quoted Bishop Ryle before. He He had a great beard. He said this, 
to follow Christ is to commit ourselves wholly and entirely to him as our only leader and savior and to submit ourselves to him in every matter, both of doctrine and practice, what we believe and how we live. We are living now, even today, in the, in the land of our sojourn. We are living today in the wilderness, in the desert. And it is tempting, as it was for the Israelites, to want to go back to Egypt. To go back to our slavery, where life seemed easier and the food seemed better. But we follow Jesus as the Israelites followed that pillar of fire. Or as they were supposed to follow that, follow that pillar of fire. We follow Jesus that way. And as we follow him, he replaces our ignorance and our foolishness with the knowledge of God and wisdom from above, James tells us. And and he does this through the ministry of the word and prayer. He replaces our ignorance with wisdom from above, knowledge of God. And he leads us out of misery and out of fear and into joy. Jesus will say in John chapter 15, verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. And as we follow Jesus, he leads us not only out of ignorance and foolishness, not only out of, uh, out of our, our bad behavior and, and bad morality, but he, but he leads us out of death and into life. In Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, one of Jesus' most famous callings, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But the twist is, Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's why we follow Jesus, to escape all the darkness. John Bunyan said that if we are to ever suffer rightly, if we are to take up our cross daily and follow him, if we are to lose our life for Christ's sake, then we must necessarily live upon God that is invisible. We must look to God who is invisible and yet he is the light of the world and we can see him and we can see him. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life, eternal life. Let's just stop right there and pray. Lord, as we consider these things, we are overwhelmed sometimes with the darkness. We are overwhelmed with dark, sinful thinking, thinking that produces behavior, that produces effects all around us, that only leads to misery and ultimately to death. We see these things all around us, Lord, in our families, in our 
work in our, on the news in our own lives. And yet as Christians, we follow the light of the world. And so we thank you that you are leading us out of death, given us life. We thank you, Lord, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we have the light of life. We thank you, Lord, that we are not um, stuck in behaviors that are sinful and immoral, but that you have delivered us from those things. You have delivered us from our consequences of our sin. Lord, I pray that as you as you grow us, Lord, that we would continue to run to Christ, that we would continue to repent of those sins and and run to our Savior, that you would fill us with the knowledge of your word, the knowledge of your person, of your grace, and of your mercy, that we may see you, that we may follow you, Lord, you are faithful. We trust your faithfulness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.